You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Palm Sunday tomorrow, and uh, the title of my sermon this weekend is The Joy and Sorrow of Palm Sunday. The Joy and Sorrow of Palm Sunday. Normally, we just talk about the joy of Palm Sunday. Why the sorrow of Palm Sunday? That's what we're going to get to as well. So, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19 is, that's where our text is going to be. Chapter 19 of Luke, verses 37 through 40. I want to go ahead and read it with you, and then we'll pray and jump right into it. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 37. Now as Jesus was approaching the path down the, from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Sounds like they're excited. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. That's an interesting answer. Let's pray. God, I thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters who have gathered here tonight. Um, We're here, God, because we want to meet with you. We want to encounter you. As human beings, Lord, especially those living in a comfortable society, We don't realize sometimes how desperate we are for the bread of life. And I pray, God, that you would, uh, that your voice would be heard tonight. We recognize the holiness of this moment simply because your presence is in the room. And so we just humble ourselves. We humble ourselves before your word. We invite your spirit to speak to us. And I pray, God, that your vision for our lives, that it would take root and blossom and help us, God, to not only stand on your faithfulness, but allow your grace to transform us into faithful people who live according to your vision. Yes, Lord. Amen. Palm Sunday. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, ever since the middle of chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus has been on a journey from Galilee down, down south to Jerusalem. Chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, he finally arrives. So it's one journey that Luke covers over 10 chapters. And it's a long journey. And on this particular journey, Jesus is not alone. There, there, there is a crowd of pilgrims, Galilean pilgrims, and maybe even beyond Galilee, who have joined him in anticipation. They're headed down to Jerusalem for Passover. That's exciting. So they're on their way from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's a long journey, several days. And if you're heading down to Jerusalem from Galilee, the last pit stop, so to speak, is Jericho. Between Jericho and Jerusalem, there's just nothing but desert. There are no gas stations. So... You want to stop in Jericho and get a rest for that last leg of the journey. And once you leave Jericho, it's up, 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 up to Jerusalem. You know Jericho is the lowest city on earth. 
right there near the shores of the Dead Sea, 1,200 feet below sea level. Now, between Jericho and Jerusalem, it's only 15 miles, but it's a climb of 3,800 feet. So you're literally going up the whole time. And so as Jesus, his disciples, and this large crowd, I don't have a number, I'm guessing maybe in the hundreds, that many people. They're traveling together to Jerusalem for Passover, and they go up, 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 up from Jericho, 15 miles. And when you enter into the city of Jerusalem from the east, and as you climb up the Mount of Olives and crest over the Mount of Olives, all of a sudden you get this beautiful, stunning panoramic view of Jerusalem. It's all right there in front of you. The Temple Mount's right there. To this day, it thrills your soul. It just gives you goosebumps. And no doubt, it would have been that case for these Galilean pilgrims. They're excited, man. Their adrenaline, is, their adrenaline is pumping. Not only because they're in Jerusalem, the holy city, not just because it's Passover. I mean, that's exciting enough. That's like Christmas. But this is the year, and this is the Passover, that they're expecting something momentous and historic to happen that will change the world. They believe that this man from Nazareth, this prophet named Jesus, well, he's the one that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. The prophets foretold God is raising up a king. He's raising up an anointed Messiah who is going to uh, lead us into the kingdom of God. He's going to usher in the reign of God and rule and reign forever. And here's what they're really expecting if you put the finer points on it. They are expecting that Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry, just like Alexander, just like Caesar Augustus, just like Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to have this triumphal entry, and he's going to ride into that capital city, take charge, clear it out, uh, raise up a revolutionary army to defeat Israel's enemies, and then he's going to claim his throne, wear his crown, and rule and reign. That's what they're expecting, without a doubt. And they're excited. There's electricity in the air. And they get to the top of the Mount of Olives and they look at this view of the Temple Mount and they say, here it is. Here's the moment. No more delay. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops. And he pauses the parade. Because now he's going to enact this prophetic fulfillment. Jesus knows the Scriptures. And he's not just going to ride into Jerusalem any old way. He's got something very specific in mind. And he says, I need two disciples to go into this nearby village, go into this building. You're going to find a little donkey, a little colt, a foal of a donkey. Go get that donkey and bring him to me. If anybody says anything, just tell them the master needs it. We'll make sure we return it to you, but he needs it right now. And they bring this little donkey to Jesus. And Jesus sits on this donkey, and it's way too small for him. Like his feet are dragging on the ground. It's like this silly, comical scene. And yet, it's precisely what Jesus has in mind. It's exactly how he wants to ride into Jerusalem on the back of this little toy donkey. Why? Well, first of all, it's a parody. Understand, it's a parody of the great military triumphs and parades of Babylon and Egypt and Rome and Greece and all of them. You know, whenever some mighty conquering king like Alexander or Augustus rode into their capital cities in a triumphal entry, what would they ride on the back of? A war horse. And yet here's a guy who they're hailing to be their king. He's not only riding on the back of an ordinary donkey, but a little 
child donkey that's never been ridden before. It's too small to be ridden and his feet are dragging on the ground. It would be like today, a presidential motorcade where the new inaugurated president on inauguration day, instead of riding in the back of the presidential limousine, chooses to ride in the back of a 72 Ford Pinto. You're laughing and that's the proper reaction to it. That's exactly what this would have looked like. It was a parody. But secondly, number two, it's a prophecy. Jesus is deliberately, intentionally, specifically fulfilling a prophecy. He knows what the true king is to look like when he comes into his kingdom. And I want to read it to you out of the Message Bible so you don't miss it. So, so it'll be very clear. Here's the prophecy. Hundreds of years before Jesus, these are the words that are written. Shout and cheer, daughter Zion. Raise your voice, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming. A good king who makes all things right. A humble king riding on a donkey. A mere colt of a donkey. God says this, I've had it with war. No more chariots in Ephraim. No more war horses in Jerusalem. No more swords and spears, bows and arrows. He will offer peace to the nations, a peaceful rule worldwide for the four winds, from the four winds to the seven seas. In other words, watch this now. When Jesus sits atop this tiny little donkey with his feet dragging in the dust, he is making a prophetic statement. He is saying everything that the prophets foretold about God establishing his kingdom through his son, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, it's happening right now, this moment before your eyes. On Palm Sunday, we are seeing the true king of kings, the true prince of peace, the true seed of Abraham, the true son of David, the true Messiah, the true Christ coming into his kingdom. But he doesn't come as... A war-waging conqueror like Alexander or Augustus. He comes in the way of God. And God says, I'm done with war. I'm done with your chariots. I'm done with your bows and your spears and your arrows. I'm coming through my son to preach peace to the nations. And so he comes humble and lowly, his feet dragging on the ground on a colt too small for him. He's riding in the back of a 72 Pinto. And Zechariah says he's a good and humble king who's coming to make things right. And at the top of the Mount of Olives, just before they begin to descend down the Mount of Olives, they start pulling down these branches and start waving them. And then they take off their coats and they place them on the path before Jesus. And they start shouting things like, Hosanna, which means save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail our king, the true king, the true king of Israel. These are very subversive things to be shouting within earshot of Roman soldiers. But everybody's exhilarated. They're filled with excitement. They're hailing him as their true king. But there were protesters on that day. There were some protesters. I'll give you one guess as to who the protesters were. Who were they? The Pharisees. Collectively, as a group, we see in the Gospels, the Pharisees were the primary antagonists against Jesus and his ministry. They had a vision for God coming and renewing their nation and launching the kingdom of God, but it was 
much, much different. They could not see Jesus' vision coherent with their vision. And so they opposed him. They opposed Jesus for a number of reasons. And this is the last mention of the Pharisees that we see in Luke 19 or in Luke period. This is the last time we read about the Pharisees. From this point on, the conspiracy, the antagonism against Jesus will be taken over by the chief priests who were not Pharisees. They were primarily Sadducees. But this is the last time we read about the Pharisees in Luke's gospel. And they approach Jesus and they say, you hear what these people are shouting? They're shouting that you're the king of Israel, Jesus. And we're in Jerusalem, and Pontius Pilate is here. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of Roman soldiers here because it's Passover. And uh, boy, the Romans get wind of this. If this gets to Pontius Pilate, if, it's, if this gets, God forbid, if it gets to Rome, they're going to stamp us out. They're going to destroy us. Tell these people to keep quiet. And Jesus says, not today. I have been telling them to be quiet this whole time. My whole ministry, I've been telling them to be quiet. Every time somebody confessed it out loud, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God, I would tell them, shh, shh, shh. don't say that too loud. Don't spread that around. Keep that to yourself. It's not time. So I've been telling them to be quiet. But today's the day it's all going to come to pass. Today, today's the day the true king is coming into his kingdom. And I'm telling you, if these people are quiet, the rocks are going to shout out because today it must be proclaimed that the true king of Israel is coming into the capital. And Jesus, on the back of this tiny little donkey, rides in that steep descent down the Mount of Olives, rides across the Kidron Valley, and then back up a little ways through the eastern gate of the temple complex and the whole way down and up the crowd is waving palm branches shouting hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord that's all psalm 118 then they start shouting things like hail the king the true king the king of israel in other words herod is not king pilate's not king caesar's not king this guy this prophet from nazareth he's our king and they start chanting peace in the heavens and glory to god in the highest which is an echo of um, the, the Christmas song that the angels sang when Jesus was born. You remember the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill among men. And now 33 years later as Jesus rides into the capital of Jerusalem in this triumphal entry, they're shouting peace in the heavens, glory to God in the highest. In other words, Jesus is now fulfilling his mission. What was the mission of Jesus? Why was he sent to the earth? To put it in one sentence, he came to usher in the reign and rule of God. And he accomplishes it through his death and resurrection. But the big picture that the Bible tells us is that God has become king through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what is being fulfilled on Palm Sunday. Jesus is coming into his kingdom. And now in celebrating the coming king, the Palm Sunday crowd is just exhilarated. Now I want to talk about this Palm Sunday crowd. Because the crowd was a contradiction. In some ways, they got this very right. They understood it well. They understood what was happening on one level. And the Palm Sunday crowd on one hand gets Jesus right. But on the other hand, the Palm Sunday crowd gets Jesus horribly wrong. In celebrating Jesus as the coming King, the Son of David, the long-awaited Messiah, the Palm Sunday crowd got Jesus right. 
in that sense because he is all of those things. He is the son of David. He is the king of Israel. He's the long-awaited Messiah who has come to redeem God's people. All of those things are true. They totally nailed it in that regard. They got Jesus right. But when they envision Jesus as a warrior king who will lead Israel into battle against their enemies, the Palm Sunday crowd gets Jesus terribly wrong. Remember, this is a triumphal entry. What are you supposed to ride on the back of? A war horse. And Jesus refuses to do that. Once again, I want you to listen to the prophecy. Here's the ancient prophecy from Zechariah. Shout and cheer, daughter Zion. Raise your voice, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming. A good king who makes all things right. A humble king riding on a donkey, a 72 pinto. A mere colt of a donkey. Because God says, I've had it with war. No more chariots. No more tanks in Ephraim. No more war horses in Jerusalem. No more swords and spears, bows and arrows. He, meaning this king, this Messiah, this prince of peace, he will offer peace to the nations. The question is, will the nations accept it? A peaceful rule worldwide from the four winds to the seven seas. So the Prince of Peace on Palm Sunday, the Prince of Peace has come. The question is, does Jerusalem want a Prince of Peace? And history tells us they do not. They want a warrior king. And when the triumphal entry turned into triumphalism, Jesus wept. The sorrow of Palm Sunday. What do I mean by triumphalism? Triumphalism is that arrogant, boastful attitude, that weird number one. It's kind of a crystallization of us versus them. And in the triumphalism of Palm Sunday, Jesus knew that Jerusalem had rejected peace and rejected the Prince of Peace. They did not want Zechariah's peaceful king. They wanted a Jewish warlord like Judah Maccabee. And 40 years later, they got what they wanted, and there was hell to pay. Beginning in the year 66 A.D., one generation after the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Christ, one generation later, false kings, false messiahs, began to rise up in Israel, just like Jesus predicted. Remember, he predicted all of this. He said, this is going to happen within your generation. There are going to be many signs, but one of the signs is that false messiahs, false Christs, false kings will rise up. And that's what history tells us in the early to mid-60s A.D. Why do revolutions always happen in the 60s? Somewhere in the 60s A.D., there were charismatic personalities that began to rise up to Israel's national attention and they began to proclaim themselves, I'm the one God has raised up. I'm the king you've been waiting for. God has anointed me and I'm going to lead you to victory against the Romans. We're going to kick their butts and I'm going to sit on the throne and we'll establish the kingdom of Israel forever. And the revolution began. Their bunker hill was Caesarea, AD 66. Eventually the Romans just say, we're done with these people. We're done with this. And they send 
the 10th Roman legion to march upon Jerusalem. A.D. 70, the 10th Roman legion marches upon Jerusalem with their standards held high and their banners flying in the wind with the Roman eagle perched atop those standards. You remember Jesus said, where the carcass is, there the eagles will gather. Jerusalem had become a bloated carcass of arrogance and pride and triumphalism, and they had rejected their Prince of Peace. And the 10th Roman Legion marches towards Jerusalem. And Jesus foresaw all of this. You read about it, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. He saw all of this one generation earlier. He said, when you see the enemy circling around Jerusalem, get out. Get out of the city. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. If you're on the rooftop of your house, don't even go inside. Just jump from rooftop to rooftop and and leave the city and pray that this doesn't happen on the Sabbath when the gates are closed. And pray that it doesn't happen during winter. It's going to be really hard and difficult. But get out, get out, get out of the city. It's all there in Luke 21. And history tells us the exact opposite happened. People fled into the city of Jerusalem within the city walls. Their mentality was, we're the people of God. This is God's holy city. God's going to defend us. God's going to defeat our enemies. But God had already spoken and said, I'm done with war. I'm done with the bows and arrows. I'm done with this us versus them hostility. It's going to lead to your destruction. And a million people swelled into the city of Jerusalem. And the 10th Roman legion surrounds the city of Jerusalem and they besiege the city and wait them out for seven months until starvation began to set in. People started resorting to cannibalism. Plagues and diseases started to break out within the city of Jerusalem. There was infighting, just total, absolute chaos. You could say it like this. Jerusalem had become a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. People were so desperate, they started trying to climb over the city city walls and escape the city. And by then, the Romans were like, it's too late. And they took every single person who tried to escape Jerusalem and they nailed them to crosses so that the whole city of Jerusalem was completely surrounded with thousands of corpses hanging on those crosses. In August, the offensive came and they broke down the city walls and they killed, we don't even know how many people. One scholar estimates maybe about 600,000 people. Josephus, who was the Jewish Roman historian, who recorded all of these events, he may have been an eyewitness. He says a million Jews died in the siege of Jerusalem. And then they took the survivors, about 100,000 of them, and they marched them all the way to Rome. I want to show you a picture on the screen. This is um, from the Arch of Titus in Rome. It was built 10 years after these events. And what you're seeing is a picture of Jewish survivors who are now Roman slaves being marched into Rome in a military parade, a triumphal entry of sorts. And they're carrying artifacts and treasuries from the temple that had been completely demolished and destroyed. And all of the spoils from Jerusalem are going to be used to fund the building of the Roman Colosseum. And the slaves from Jerusalem are the workforce who are going to build it. So if you've ever been to the Roman Colosseum, that is a direct line to the events that Jesus warned about 
one generation earlier. He warned them that it was going to happen, and he wept over it. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 41. All of this, by the way, is on Palm Sunday. And the crowd is exuberant, and they're cheering, and they're hailing Jesus as king. But their triumph had turned into triumphalism, and it brought tears to Jesus' eyes. And look at what he says on Palm Sunday. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, the city of peace, Jerusalem, if you had recognized on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. And Jesus wept. Now, I want, you to, make, I want to make sure you know what's happening here. This is supposed to be the culmination of the covenant. This is like the fulfillment of all of those ancient prophecies. This is supposed to be the pinnacle of Jewish hope. God has intervened. He's raised up our, our Messiah, a prince of peace, who's going to preach peace to the nations and usher in the reign and rule of God. But Jerusalem, in the heat of the moment, has rejected him. They've rejected God's vision. Yes, they're confessing that Jesus is the king. They're lifting their hands. They're waving their palms. They're shouting, hooray, Jesus. But they have in their mind that he's going to be a violent, war-waging king, not the kind of king that Jesus is. And five days later, Jesus is on trial. The Prince of Peace has come, but they don't want a Prince of Peace. They want a hero. And they're convinced that they have a hero. And his name was, wait for it, Barabbas. Now, Mel Gibson totally butchered Barabbas. Didn't get him right at all. And sometimes you see these Jesus films, and, and they depict Barabbas, and he's like this foaming out at the mouth, raving lunatic, bloodthirsty criminal. That's not Barabbas. Barabbas was a freedom fighter. He was a national hero. He was like a brave heart figure he had launched an insurrection killed a bunch of roman soldiers and rome captures him and arrests him and now he's slated for execution but this man's a jewish hero he's a freedom fighter and by the way scripture doesn't include this but tradition gives it to us did you know that barabbas that's a surname did you know what barabbas's first name is what anybody know what barabbas's first name was jesus jesus Barabbas, 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 Abba Father, Barabbas, Son of the Father. His name was Jesus, Son of the Father. He's a false Messiah. And Pontius Pilate, early on Friday morning, with this crowd that's been stoked by the Jewish Sanhedrin into a frenzy, he's got Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus Barabbas on either side. And in the tradition of Passover, he offers to them one prisoner slated for execution. I'm going to give you one of them to set free. Which one will it be, Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Barabbas? Will it be your freedom-fighting hero insurrectionist or will it be the peaceful Messiah riding on a donkey too small for him from Nazareth? Which one will it be? And they said, give us Barabbas. And he said, what about this Jesus of Nazareth? Crucify him. 
These are the events that unfold during Holy Week, beginning with Palm Sunday. I think these palms, these palm branches immersed in the cross, I think that's a very prophetic symbol to us today. The crowd said the right things on Palm Sunday, but they said them in the wrong way. You see, it's, it's, it's not enough just to praise Jesus as king. We have to know what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom he's inviting us to be a part of. If you think that Jesus is a king after the model of the conquering pharaohs and Caesars, we are in fact rejecting Jesus. And refusing the Prince of Peace always has terrible consequences. That's why Jesus says, a generation from now, Jerusalem will become a fiery Gehenna, where the worm dieth not, eating those corpses, and the fires are never quenched. And Jerusalem did it to itself in rejecting Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace. Jerusalem didn't want a new kingdom of God. They simply wanted to play the old us versus them hostility game. And their desire to play the old game led them to destruction. The Prince of Peace had rolled into town offering a new way of being Israel, a new way of being the people of God, and they missed it. Their desires to beat their enemies at the old game had blinded them. They got Jesus wrong and it set them on a wrong path that ended in their destruction. This is what Jesus had been warning about his entire life and ministry. Daniel, would you just come begin to play? I want you to know this evening, this is not a mere history lesson. This is an enduring warning to every follower of Jesus. Do we really want the unvarnished Jesus of the Gospels? and his new way of peace, and his vision for what human life can be as he gives it in his Sermon on the Mount, in his teachings, as he embodies it on his life, as he embodies it on the cross, when he stretches his arms out and prays over his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's showing us the ways of peace and true life and vitality. He's showing us this is the way to live. Do we really want Jesus as he is unvarnished in the Gospels? Or do we want to simply take Jesus and make him our mascot and dress him in our team colors? Do we want to take Jesus and sand him down and soften him and tame him and domesticate him and use him to just help us win the old game of us versus them? It's not enough to praise Jesus. You can do that and still get Jesus completely wrong. We get Jesus right when we confess him as Messiah and King. We get Jesus wrong when we see him as for us and against them. We get Jesus right when we wave the palms as an invitation and welcome to the world's true King. We get Jesus wrong when waving those palms becomes hooray for our side, which is primarily how the Palm Sunday crowd waved those palms. Jesus wins his kingdom, not by killing, but by being killed. Not by taking lives, but by laying his life down. Not through the sword, but through the cross. Not riding a war horse, but riding a toy donkey of peace.
In this Palm Sunday, I want to get Jesus right. At Village Church, I want us to get Jesus right. I want us to receive our good king who comes to set the world right. But remember, Jesus doesn't set the world right by killing his enemies. That's the thing about the human race is we always want to envision that the enemy is somewhere out there. Our enemy's out there somewhere. Jesus comes to teach us the real enemy is in here. It's your heart. It's what we've made of ourselves. It's playing the old game. They tried to force his hand to take the sword and Jesus says, I won't do it. My hands do not grasp the sword. Jesus says, my hands are nailed to the cross. And he says, and now if you'll be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. So this is what I want you to be thinking about and meditating on and reflecting on as we enter into Holy Week over the next few days, as we enter into Good Friday. Think on these things. Contemplate these things. Let the words of Christ, let the actions of Christ on Palm Sunday absorb deep into your heart, deep into your mind and your imagination, and let them form you as a human being in prayer. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the true King. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. Thank you.